Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. My interests are medicine, hematology, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. This week, we got a great episode in store for you. We've got an interview, and I think you're going to really like this. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, check out the new website, www.plenarysessionpodcast.com. We've got show notes. We've got trial summaries. We've got everything you could want on the website. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Write a review for us on the iTunes store. And become a supporter for this podcast on Patreon. Patreon backers get access to the slides for presentations I give on Plenary Session. You also get a few bonus lectures. And with that, let's start the show. I'm back in Plenary Session, joined by Dr. Jeffrey Flyer. Jeff Flyer is a former dean of Harvard Medical School, and he is someone who I've uh, had the good fortune to chat with uh, quite a bit over the last year and a half. Um, Dr. Flyer, it's a pleasure to have you here on the podcast. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure to join you. So I wanted to, um, I don't know, there's so many things I wanted to talk to you about, and particularly your time um, as the dean of Harvard Medical School, um, and, and also about the culture of science in the moment. But I wonder if you might um, start uh, back in the beginning. I wonder if we might take listeners through a little bit, a little snapshots, highlights of your career. Um, I guess the first thing I wanted to, to mention was um, you did your medical school in uh, Sinai in New York City. Um, you stayed on to do your residency there. Um, I wonder um, if you might talk about what it was like um, to be a student in New York City um, back when you trained. How, what, what was that experience like? Oh, well, you know, I was born and raised in New York. And uh, just to go back two layers, I, mm. I was I went to the public schools. I was at the Bronx High School of Science, I which see. was one of the, uh, I always say, the smartest people I ever knew up until today were my classmates at Bronx Science High School. <laughs> Uh, I went to City College of New York with a tuition of $37 per semester. $37, uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and uh, but it was a great education, uh, very smart people at that point. You know, everything was, uh, they used to call it the proletarian Harvard. Um, <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's still a great place, still a great place, City College. Yeah, it is, uh, but it's a little different from the way it was then, but yeah, uh, yeah it's still a good place. And um, uh, I decided between medicine and law, and I decided on medicine, and uh, I applied to a variety of places. I wasn't at the absolute top of my class. It seemed like about a quarter of all the students I knew at City College wanted to be doctors, so it was a very competitive mm -hmm. situation. Mm -hmm. And I got into a bunch of schools, and the one that I decided to go to was Mount Sinai, which at that point, it was the first inaugural entering class. And I found that very exciting to be in a class of 36 people who would be kind of historically the first. And what year and, was this that you uh, matriculated? What year did you start? Uh, I started in 68 and, and, and graduated in 72. Wow. You were not born then. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't. Uh, but right. uh, what it? I mean, I mean, what a year to start! I mean, '68 was quite an eventful yeah, year. Yeah, so it was a politically fraught year. The Vietnam War was going on. There was a lot of campus politics. 
there were a bunch of kids in my class of 36 who were very active in campus politics when they were in college. So the whole thing was very, it was on one level a political environment. On, yes. on another level, it was, uh, I was in a group that just was thrilled to be in the first class. You know, I can remember the first lecture, the second lecture, the third lecture, and they had collected a group of really smart, like department chairs to be the foundational department chairs. And they were amazing people. Mm -hmm. And uh, the the thing that was particularly, uh, let's say, formative for me was that for some reason that was, I think, quasi random, the people who were leading the school in the various departments had a strong interest in diabetes. Mm. And, uh, you know, strangely enough, I became a diabetes specialist. I see. So I, I sort of uh, was, uh, I treated these as heroic people. They, yeah. Some of them were. Yeah. And uh, um, I did a little research in medical school, yeah. uh, uh, in immunology, uh, and but decided I wanted to be an endocrinologist yeah. and be doing research, if I could, on diabetes. I see. And, and were you? Uh, is, is your family a medical family? Did you come from? No, Dr. no, no, no. Um, my father uh, did not go to college. Mm -hmm. He was a pilot in World War II and came back and uh, joined the, the the business of my mother's family, which I is see. a fur business. And my grandparents were all Russian immigrants without any education, so there were no doctors in my immediate family. I see. You stayed on at Sinai to do your residency, and then you went to the National Institutes of Health. So this must have been in the late 1970s in that, at NIH. Um, well, actually, it was in the early 1970s. Early 1970s, so mid, okay. Mid-1970s. So mid I, okay. I finished my residency in 74, Okay. but I applied to go to NIH while I was a junior medical student because... We were all aware the war was going on. They were drafting doctors. I see. I didn't have a good number in the draft lottery. Right. And everyone sort of knew that the best thing you could possibly do if you wanted to not be drafted was to go to NIH for further training. It was a highly competitive program. Uh, and, uh, you know, I applied. Um, I, I, and when I graduated, I was considered, you know, number one in the class. So I had a good standing and um, I applied to many groups at NIH. It was a it was a match just like the residency matches today. Mm -hmm. And my number one choice was the, the group that I got accepted into, which was the diabetes branch at NIH. Mm -hmm. And um and uh, uh, and as part of the whole deal for my particular program, I did an endocrine fellowship as well as research. In, diabe in diabetes. And uh, in was, diabetes. was it the NIDDK back then or did it have a different nomenclature? Uh, you know, it was not the NIDDK. It was, an, it was the National Institute of Diabetes and Metabolic Disease. Wow. Okay. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. yeah. And then I, I think the, the kidney uh, part or the digestive disease part got thrown in later. Yes. Anyway, it, uh, it had a different name. <laughs> they engulfed it. So I want to ask you this. Um, you know, I, I know I know a bit about the oncology history in the 1970s, and it was a very eventful time. I mean, the advances that were made in that decade are uh, still carry forth to this day. What was it like in endocrinology and diabetes? Was it an exciting time for you? Was it an exciting place to be? 
Oh, it was unimaginably exciting uh, because at that particular point in time, it was in the, you know, the, the curve was just taking off for molecular understanding of endocrinology. Mm -hmm. And the, the, the group that I was in, the diabetes branch, its expertise was it really was the foundational lab in figuring out how hormones like insulin work, that they bound to molecules on the membrane of cells that they called receptors. No one had identified a receptor. And what the group was doing, it was defining techniques for saying, this is a receptor. It binds to a, a highly labeled hormone in a reversible manner, and it has these certain kinetics. And, uh, and that's the, the, the lab into which I came that was doing that. And it was famous around the world at that point. And then in the, the broader endocrine community there, you know, it was just many of the great, great names of endocrinology of that era were mm. there. Uh, so it was extremely exciting. Um, with the one exception that when I started out in my lab effort, uh, nothing was working for about nine months. And uh -huh. I was actually, and other people's projects were going great. So I was beginning to think that maybe this was going to be a, you know, a short phase, then I'd go back and be a clinical endocrinologist. Uh -huh. And then I had a good idea. I was able to carry out the idea. It worked. Uh, I had a little bit of uh, mini fame there. And suddenly, uh, all these places wanted to hire me to be an assistant professor uh, in endocrinology. And that's what happened. And, and that's how you went to the House of God. You were on the Harvard faculty <laughs> and you're at the Beth Israel Deaconess. And you, you were there. I mean, I mean, your career was there um, and you worked your way up the ladder. Um, you were there. A long yeah, time. I went there in 78 as an assistant professor and uh, I was the head of a diabetes unit and yes. I was the diabetes unit. There was no one else. It was <laughs> You're the head me. of yourself. <laughs> right. I was, yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I was in yeah. charge of myself. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people said, why would you do that? Because right across the street is the Joslin Diabetes Center. I mm -hmm. said, yeah, but they're a different organization. They're not part of us. We have a hospital. You have a hospital. So, you know, and it worked. Uh, yeah. You know, I built a group and, it, you know, it eventually went on to be quite a big group of other faculty. And then I became the head of the endocrine division, which was the larger thing. And then I went on to do other things. I'm wondering, um, what was the culture like in, in academic medicine at that time? I mean, um, you strike me as a hard worker, but was it the kind of job where you were there all the time? Um, you know, was it a competitive environment? I mean, um, what, 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 was the, what were those years like, uh, 78 yeah, to say 88? Yeah, well, it's interesting to think back about it in the context of your question. I mean, it was competitive, not against other people. I didn't see myself competing against any other person doing what I was doing. It was competitive in that you knew that um, you were going to be successful if you did research that led to papers that got published, that got recognized, which then led you to get grants, which then, you know, led you to get good fellows, you know, all of those things. So you right. knew no one was going to or could hand you that. Right. You're competing against yourself. You're competing against yourself. And um, uh, so that is the way that I felt. Now I had a young family. Uh, my wife 
came up to complete her residency. When I came up to take that job, she had a baby, our older daughter, who's now a doctor at Harvard Medical School. Uh, but she she uh, uh, was born, you know, shortly after we arrived in Boston. Uh, so I, you know, I had a certain amount of uh, work-life balance. I was not, uh, you know, working 70-hour weeks, but I surely was working 50-hour weeks mm-hmm. and thought a lot about my activities, my research, you know, when I was, uh, when I was home. You know, when you were doing those those first few years, I would imagine like so many people, um, I mean, there's some uncertainty. You talk about, you know, what does it take to build up a lab? It's not easy. Yeah. Never was easy. Um, but the, but the rhetoric around it, I think is different today than it once was. I mean, I'm just curious. I mean, did people talk about burnout? Did people uh, talk about um, those kinds of issues back then? Or was it a different mindset really? I, mean, I think it was a different mindset. No one that I remember anyone talking about burnout, although yeah. I'm sure some people burned out around me, <laughs> right. but, but they weren't talking about it. They were just doing it. <laughs> yeah, just And, um, you know, I think it, fairness, uh, there was an easier uh, grant route, okay? Yes. The grant, okay. Uh, the, the, the number of people who did what I did was fewer, you know, relatively speaking, than it became as I went along. And so, uh, you know, I, I got my first grant. I didn't get every grant that I ever applied for, but I got most of them. And, um, uh, you know, at various couple of different points, I also uh, was able to get some uh, um, uh, biopharmaceutical support sure. at, at a couple of points that was very helpful to expand my efforts. And, uh, and it was, uh, so, um, yeah, things have changed. I was reading online that you were pointing out that, um, in your lab many years ago, you pushed the industry to, um, to pursue drugging of SGLT2. Um, so well, that's not exactly correct. What, okay. I mean, there was no SGLT2. Okay. So the short story on that was yeah. that I, I co-founded a biotech company, uh-huh. uh, in about 1988 with a couple of friends of mine at Harvard and we had some good ideas and we we spoke with someone who spoke to someone and before we knew it there was this little company that was part of another biotech but it was kind of semi-independent yeah and uh we had great ideas uh and you know to get to the end of the story none of them came to anything but in retrospect when we look at it all of them should have come to something, but in fact, the the money was cut off before the projects got to where they needed to go, and uh, none of us wanted to leave academia to pursue these, you know, as our main career. We could have, yeah. but we didn't. But the one that you're talking about is a, I mean, if you weird story, but uh, since the SGLT2 inhibitors are now a big thing, they have right. all these beneficial effects that weren't anticipated. So we were at a phase where, you know, we needed as founders to come up with some additional new ideas, we were told. So uh, I did some thinking and came up with the idea that based on some physiology that was being done, if you could inhibit the absorption of glucose by the kidney, you know, so it would be peed out rather than reabsorbed, you could actually have a highly effective diabetes treatment. And I sure, made a okay. presentation to explain why this would be. And the reason I was particularly interested in, I had just done a sabbatical year at MIT 
in the lab that had cloned the first glucose transporter. Nice. At that time, they thought it was the only glucose transporter. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Now there's eight or nine. Yes. And but I said, hey, we have the technology. Let's clone the one that's in the kidney. Then we can inhibit it, and then we can have a diabetes treatment. And I was very excited about it. But all my friends and colleagues around the table looked at me and said, Nah, that's not a good project. And uh, and it took it now 20 years for uh, those drugs to come out, but they're they're amazingly good. They're amazingly good. Yes, I was just seeing uh, overall survival benefits here, there, everywhere. It looks terrific. Yeah, yeah. So, so I want to ask you this question. Um, you know, when I read about you, um, you know, 20 years is compressed into one line, as so often is the case. Um, you know, yeah. but you were right. You know, you were the you were you're the chief of endocrinology. Um, you were the vice chair of medicine. You were the the chief administrative officer um, for academics at the Bethesville Deaconess, and eventually they tap you to be dean. Um, I wonder if you might tell us. I don't know if you thought about this, but you know. It's it's a combination of things. I, I've been thinking. I mean, and you tell me if I'm wrong. You'll know better yeah. than me. Um, you know, um, in order to be a really successful academician, to be an academic leader, as you have as you have been, as you are, um, you know, you you have to be really good at your science. You have to be really solid in your clinical skills. I think you have to have this component that people um, often gloss over. But I mean, there is some element of ambition, um, the desire to do that, and then I think. You have to be some degree a politician. Um, I don't know. How do you how do you think of yourself along? You know, what was it about you? Um, you know, this kid from the Bronx, um, you know, went to City College, New York, and you ended up the dean of Harvard Medical School. What was it? What is it about you that that puts you there? Or was it chance? You know, what were those things? Yeah, well, I'll start off. Of course, there was an element of chance, which, okay. <laughs> you know, I can't quantify, but I can just put it in context in that. You know, I never thought of myself as a particularly ambitious person. On the other hand, I kind of was self-confident. I thought I could do things. And if I could do them, I should do them, you know. So when different opportunities came out of the endocrine division, or should we get a new person? I said, oh, wait a minute. That, you know, and I'm glad that I did that. And then the hospital uh, changed over in its chair of medicine. And I was interviewing, I was discussing with our new chair. And he said, well, what do you think is something that we need here? I said, well, there's really no one who oversees research in this very big research, you know, heavy department. He says, oh, would you like to do that? I said, okay, I did that. Uh, then uh, the hospital got into some financial trouble in the early 90s. And there were reasons to think someone needed to look at the whole academic mission. And there was a new president who was hired. And I had known him a little bit because he used to be at Harvard Medical School. And he said, Jeff, uh, you know, what do you think we need? I mean, these things literally happen. And he said, to, I said, well, you know, Gene Braunwald at uh, the Partners Institution, he's called the chief academic officer. I said, I could do that here. He says, write your description. So, that, so that's how I got to those jobs. Yes, okay. And, uh, and then I had been, you know, I had been asked by different search firms to look at different dean jobs. And I looked at a couple of them, but I was very happy in Boston. My family was happy in Boston. And I did not want to disrupt that for a dean job that didn't look all that you know, important to me at the time. And then the Harvard dean job came to you know, being open. 
and um, the the uh, it was also at the transition of the Harvard presidency from uh, going to Drew Faust, who hadn't yet started. They had a the usual thing at Harvard. They name a an advisory committee the president to you know look at candidates. And I knew a couple of people on the committee, but most of them I didn't. And uh, every once in a while, this was between late 70, I'm sorry, late 2006 to mid early 2007, I would be hearing on the rumor mill, you know, hey, Jeff, I hear your name is on the list when it was 100, it was 30, it was 10, yeah. you know, and I said, Gee, that's interesting. No one has talked to me. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, then, I, believe it or not, in I think it was in April or May of 2007, the Boston Globe ran an article saying the Harvard Medical School search for their new dean is down to two finalists. And they mentioned me as one of the finalists. I see. It was bizarre. Yeah. Uh -huh. And you still and hadn't heard anything Boston about it. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I didn't hear anything from the president. Uh, and, uh, and then a few days after that, uh, Drew Faust contacted me and said, I'd like yeah. to meet with you. I met with her. I won't go through all of the stuff, sure. uh, but she offered me the job. And well, I let me ask it. you. So, I mean, I, I don't know, you you'd been at Harvard a long time. And so a lot of people probably knew you and you had had a, a rising administrative roles. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess what I don't have a sense of, I, I mean, you know, I, I know you one-on-one -on -one a little bit over the last year, year and a half. Um, what is your personality? I mean, it seems like you're, you're an easygoing person. Do you get, you get mad? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. So that, that's kind of an open-ended uh -huh. personality question, yes. but what I would say is, because I've thought about it, I haven't really talked about this publicly with anyone, but I think the reputation that I had amongst a lot of colleagues, some of whom knew me well, some of whom didn't know me all that well, but knew me by reputation was, that I was reasonably bright, competent. I cared about other people. I cared about the institution. It wasn't just about me. I had integrity. I was honest. I wasn't a bullshit artist. Mm -hmm. Those were the things. And I think that those criteria knocked a lot of other people on the list off. <laughs> of course, of course. And this might work, have, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. So I, I was a survivor having those traits. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, uh, now, uh, do I have strong opinions on things? Absolutely, I do. Uh, do I try to lord it over people with my strong opinions? No. I I did. Oh, excuse me. My wife has decided to enter. Please, hey. you can leave now, Terry. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm being getting, recorded. Yes, I'm getting to. The okay. Thank you. <laughs> Great to we see have you. A very good relationship. Of course. <laughs> well, both of you are on Twitter and terrific follows. Um, so I right, highly recommend. Right. Yeah. So, um, let's see, where was I here? Um, you were talking about saying, your personality traits. So, yeah, you're, yeah, go on. Yeah. So, um, but I can make very, you know, I can make strong decisions when those are called for. Yeah. And I've had to do that a number of times. Yes. Like I made a decision to close one department in Harvard yes. Medical School. I made a decision to close Third Center for a variety of reasons that were that were very powerful and required me. Uh, so, um, but you know, the people who I hired, I worked with very effectively. Um, I would state my opinions. Uh, you know, people viewed me as more honest about my views than 
maybe some other deans who would talk in, you know, in communication speak. Uh, but um, I, I felt to me there was a line between um, speaking for the institution, which you have to do when you're a dean, and letting people know what you actually think on some issues. Right. That was possible to do. It's more difficult to do today with social media, cancel culture, all the rest. Uh, so I'm very glad that that's not the position I'm in today. That's fascinating. Um, okay. Um, I want to talk to you about one of those small issues um, of today, uh, because, because I, I mean, I, I think, you know, I think there is a, you know, I think you're onto something. You're onto something in the sense that when we meet people face to face, there's nothing that um, are one of the things that we respect a great deal in the academy are straight shooters. People who tell you what they think, even if you don't agree, if they do it with a smile on their face and if they are receptive to your point of view as well, you know, you tell them what you think and they don't immediately demean you or say it's wrong. They say, you know, that's what you think. That's what I think. And here's why, you know, let's talk it out a little bit. Let's get a cup of coffee. You know, let's get lunch. You know, yeah. um, that's what we love yeah. face to face. But that same interaction, if it's in this impersonal world of online, I think it can be heated. It can escalate. There can be all these malicious actors who pile on. Um, and, and so I do think you're right. There is something different going on. It's it, it's not as healthy as it once was. It's particularly bad in the age of COVID. We can talk about those things. But the thing I wanted yeah. to ask you about a little bit are the portraits. Yeah, I don't know if you know I'd be asking about this. Ah, but the portraits. The yes. portraits. And, um, okay, so, you know, I guess um, – and, 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 you know, I, I think I follow one of your daughters on Twitter as well. And I think, um, you know, she and I are probably the same generation. We're kind of like-minded on some of these things, but I also see your point as well. And so I, I'm curious if you want to articulate it, but here's how I would frame the issue. Um, I think uh, as, has, as has been in the long arc of human progress, um, we increasingly have uh, more diverse classes, um, more women, more minorities, more people like myself, whose parents are immigrants who came from India um, with nothing to this country. Um, we have um, uh, we we the, the face and 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 the people who are in medicine is changing over time. Um, Absolutely. This, yeah. At the same and that's terrific. And at the same time. Um, Medicine is a noble profession, particularly American medicine. I think American medicine the last two centuries is a noble profession. It's a noble profession because it drove the world. American medicine over the last two centuries, um, and to some degree in Europe and, and some degree elsewhere as well, but American medicine led. I mean, we are the people who have set by we, I mean, Americans, you know, we're the ones who set the standards for how do we train people? What does it mean to have scientific medicine? How has medicine transformed itself over the last two centuries? And some of the people who've held the very important roles, such as dean or chancellor or section chief or chairman, um, these happened to be, I think, because of the culture of America at the time, you know, more white men than any other demographic. Um, but they were, you know, people who overcame challenges in their own life. And they were people who I think did contribute. And they contributed to not just their own personal um, uh, goals, but also to uh, the health of many people um, who may not look anything like them. And so at a place like Harvard Medical School, my understanding is that there is some hall that's a very sacred hall. And this hall had a number of portraits on the wall. And uh, those portraits are um, uh, naturally of the people who held the leadership roles for most of the history of Harvard Medical School. Um, and, and so it is disproportionately white men. Um, a thousand years from now, I think it'll look very different. A thousand years from now, it'll be uh, reflecting the, the, the changing demographics in schools. But it is what it is at the moment. Um, the question is arised, um, you know, should the portraits be left up or should they be taken down? And I think the argument to take them down 
is the argument that um, it, it doesn't feel as inclusive. And I think, you know, I, I have to commend your family because your daughter and you, you know, you actually talked about it online publicly. And your, I think your daughter played that. He, she, she argued the other side that it doesn't feel inclusive to those of us who look at that portrait and don't see ourselves in, in that person. Um, you had a different argument. And um, I'm wondering if you might articulate your, and, and you had an argument. And I, and I guess I would say not only did you have an argument, but I think um, a lot of people may have held your views, but you had the courage to put pen to paper and you actually came forward with the views. So I wonder if you might articulate yeah. your argument. Yeah, sure, sure. And so let me give you the just the actual history of what happened, um, because it was quite interesting. First of all, it 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 wasn't at uh, it wasn't Harvard Medical School per se. Okay, it was um, uh, the Brigham and Women's Hospital, their main lecture hall. Okay. That's a hospital that goes back about a hundred years, and it's very it's right you know across the lane from. Uh, the, the administrative building of Harvard Medical School. And I remember when I unsuccessfully applied for an internship at the Brigham, um, uh, I was taken on a tour of that building <laughs> yeah. you know, and shown yeah. what were then still a lot of portraits. You would put up the portraits of the chairs of departments, the hospital presidents, et cetera. And indeed they were white men because there's no mystery. That's who were the leaders then for reasons that we all know were not ideal, but that's what they were. Um, and uh, you know, over the years, I must have given six or seven major lectures in that very spot. And every time I would come, there'd be a few more, you know, portraits hung up to the point yeah. where at the very end, uh, the, the the wall space was completely filled. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and. Um, so I was invited, now it's about two years ago, to give a lecture there to the medical grand rounds before COVID. I actually went there and I walked into the room and I saw, I was kind of taken aback. There was nothing on the walls. Mm -hmm. All the portraits were gone. And I think I had heard some rumor to that effect, but I, I was still taken aback. And I said to somebody in the front, one of the senior professors, what's, what's with the portraits? And they said, oh, we, you know, we can't talk about it. All right. So I gave my lecture. I didn't say anything about it. And then over the next few days, I decided to write something about it. Uh, and I wrote what became an op-ed in the Boston Globe. And the point that I was making, and anyone could get it, you can still get that article online. Uh, I don't think I would change a single word of what I wrote. Because mm -hmm. I, I did a lot in thinking about it before I wanted to sure. publish it. And I basically said, hey, folks, Medicine has changed. It used to be all white males. There didn't weren't any Jews. There weren't any right. any other kind of grouping other than what we'll call for the moment white males. Many of the white males who were up there were amazingly important physicians yes. and leaders who we respect. We don't. They, it's not like they were Southern, you know, Revolutionary War generals. These sure. were doctors who were doing good stuff who we recognize for what they did. Yes. And um, and I said that the thing has changed dramatically. You know, uh, now uh, half of the medical students are women, maybe 51 percent more than 49 men. The number of women on the faculty has gone up. The number of underrepresented minorities has gone up, not as fast as people would like. But, you know, many reasons that one can give why that has been. It's a subject of discussion. OK. So what I said was that if your goal is to 
um, accommodate the changes, the thing to do is not to take down all of the portraits and leave the walls bare, but you develop an intelligent, thoughtful strategy to take some of them down and replace them with portraits of people who are more diverse, women. The president of the hospital at the time is a woman, was a woman, yes. you know, uh, and there are important people who are women and minorities in that institution, both physicians and non-physician people who are often not given as much respect with portraits and they should be put up there and yes. then put a large plaque as you enter yes. saying, this is what we want you to know about our portraiture. Give a lecture once a year about the changing uh, humanity who represent the Brigham and Women's Hospital. That's what I said. Yes. And um, and I, you know, I, I did get what I would say were a hundred or more, you know, emails from people, including many department chairs at the Brigham saying, thank you for saying what we felt we could not say, or we did say privately. And that was the end of that. And yeah. then I had some people saying that it was insensitive. Yeah. And I understand that they said that and they felt that. But I think that's a mistake of sensitivity as much as it is, uh, you know, a mistake on my part. If I may articulate what I think the philosophical question is, because I think this is a it's a visible symbol of a philosophical yeah. question. And the philosophical question, as I see it, is um, in a in a well-intentioned and good effort to um, to celebrate human beings in all of the myriad ways in which we are similar and different. Um, mm -hmm. um, the, there are two ways you can do that. One is um, you can take down everyone's portrait or the other way is you can add more portraits yeah, to the portraits. Exactly. Yeah. And, 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 and I guess, and I guess I can, I can understand why um, out of frustration or out of uh, a history of, of, of a past uh, uh, injustice, one might feel the right answer is to take down the portraits. But the more I think about it, I always come to the feeling that the right answer is to add more portraits. Um, is The right answer is what you say. And, I, and I'll tell you why. Um, you know, I grew up in this country uh, in a, you know, my dad's an engineer and, you know, he uh, worked in, and we always lived in towns where, you know, I think I'm the only Indian face in the, in the whole town. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I, I throughout I think in high school, there were 600 kids in my class and maybe there was one other Indian guy, um, but there weren't many. Um, and, you know, over the years when I was a student, there were always occasional displays of like um, all the uh, Pulitzer Prize winners in fiction. Maybe that comes to mind. Actually, it comes to mind yeah. because I'm actually reading a, a, a great novel by Philip Roth. Um, okay. You know, a, a guy from Newark, Jewish writer, American writer, um, maybe one of the greatest American writers in history, right. um, you know. And, um, and, and when I looked at that display, as a kid, I didn't see, you know, Dr. Fai, I didn't see a lot of white faces looking back at me and I didn't see that I'm an Indian kid. How will I ever fit in there? I always, I always saw myself in those people. I always saw myself in the sense that I saw what happens when you apply yourself to the craft, what happens when you care about eternal human truths. I always saw myself in all these photos, even I look nothing like the person. And I guess, I think that, you know, that's part of it. It's that, um, yes, the photo should reflect the world as we, as, as it is and as we want it to be. But at the same time, we should, I think, all see in each other more commonalities, uh, the commonality of, of being a human 
uh, struggling and, and working and trying to make the world better, which, you know, to be honest, probably every single doctor on that wall in their own way, in their own time, product of their times, you know, they couldn't change the world on their own based on what right. they might've wanted. Um, but yet in their own way, they put their, they put themselves to the task of making human health better. And so I do admire them. I admire them. Yeah. I, I respect them. I appreciate what they did. And I hope a thousand years from now, maybe somebody will look back at us and say that, you know, they admire some things we did too. Yeah, I, I could not agree more with your articulation of that. And I would just add the point now, you know, as a educator, is that to, to promote the view by our more diverse group of students and trainees, you know, to promote the view that you should be looking for someone who looks like you, and if not, you should be hurt and impeded or develop a headache or become depressed. I think that that is a terrible approach to uh, you know, facilitating the future development of people who I have enormous respect for and expectations for. We want people to be doing just what you did. You know, I mean, I, I knew when I was growing up, even though in the neighborhood that I was in and school was I was in, there were a lot of predominantly Jewish kids. But I knew that in many parts of society and academia, there were very few Jews. Yeah. And, you know, my goal wasn't to be hurt by that. My goal was to do the best that I could do. And maybe I'll end up somewhere where I wouldn't have been expected to be, you know. So I think that that the attitude that you take going into these kinds of encounters with the world is very material for how successful you will be. And what we want is people to be successful, not to be hurt and damaged and you know unwilling to look at a speaker in a room because of the, uh, the, the fact that the people up on the walls uh, you know, were mainly white men. So I, I, I want to expand on that thesis a little bit because it really hits close to home, which is, um, you know, w when I started out, I was a, you know, Indian kid going to oncology, but of course there's some Indian men, you know, people have broken that path before me, but yep. I was also somebody interested. I mean, not, not about race or gender or anything. I was interested in doing something fundamentally different than what I had seen oncologists model. I want to do health policy. Yep. I wanted to yep. do evidence-based medicine. I want to do like type of research that there was nobody ahead. Of. There's, I mean, there may have been a couple of people. I don't want to overstate the claim, but yeah. there were not clear role models for me. And I, 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 and I, and I want to tell the, the people, the, the young people who listen, I want to tell them, if you look up at something or you look in a direction and there is no one who is like you doing that, you do that. You push your exactly. way through it. You do that. You fight for it. You do it. And you know what? It may not be easy. I mean, I think when you, when you're in the arena that you and I are in the arena of ideas, people will insult you. They'll call you names. They'll push back yeah. on you. They'll tell you you're wrong. They're stupid. You shouldn't talk. You're not qualified. You got to yeah. just put your nose down and keep doing it. And when you do it for 15 years, when you do it for that kind of time, um, it, it, walls will break. And what I want it, I mean, I think what we both want is we want to have a, a youth that is so resilient that they can yes. blow through obstacles. Could not agree more. We're a yeah. hundred thousand percent in agreement. Now let's talk about something else. Okay, so I want to come to where we uh, disagree and agree. You know, so I think that, that I mean, listeners may not r recognize, but you know, um, 
you you and I have uh, some uh, you know we don't agree on everything I know and for 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 years we we have sparred um, we sparred on social media um, and you know what actually uh, I guess I kind of I even though we've sparred I respect the fact that you know a former dean or dean of Har- at the time you were still dean a dean of Harvard Medical School would spar with somebody about the ideas um, you know as somebody who was when we were sparring I I felt I felt validated to some degree that you would spar with me. You, you view me as the kind of person whose ideas are so serious, worth taking seriously, that you, Jeff Flyer Dean, will say you're wrong. So I actually admired that. You know, you know, that's, yeah. that's, that's right. So I'm appreciative of the fact that Jeff Flyer is going to argue with me. That's good for me. That means that I, my ideas are worth being argued <laughs> with the dean of Harvard Medical. Right. Okay. So um, the things we always argued about were our legitimate differences of opinion, I think, on the role of the pharmaceutical mm-hmm. industry and, and where that should be. And, you know, we recently sure. did a, a debate for that. Um, but but uh, as I just say that as background, because I want to talk about the thing that that kind of united us, which was, although we had our differences of opinion on this issue, and they're shaped by our different experiences, you as somebody who's tried to have these biotech companies and tried to push ideas in this way, and me by somebody who's watching what's going on in oncology, just different experiences were coming to the table. Um, yeah. COVID-19 hit, and, and suddenly... Um, our differences seem to pale in comparison to what we see as uh, as a commonality. Um, so I wonder if we can talk about this a little bit. Um, the common, the, this, this thing, the thing that we see that unites us more than where we disagree, um, and that is that we need to be in a place where we can vigorously debate ideas. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, well, I think it's a foundationally important. Um, fact that advancing in an intellectual realm where the where, where the with the view of I, where the uh, ideas are critical right requires the back and forth of different ideas that will start out being in opposition or not in complete agreement and then the various mechanisms are in place from experimental methods to analytical thought methods you know to like try to figure out better than was known before the the interchange, you know, what is true and what isn't, or what is closer to the truth, or what is more uh, appropriate to take forward to the next step. So that's like a no-brainer. That's what that's why I wanted to be in the world of academia, because that's the currency of academia as I understood it and as I want to understand it. Uh, and um, so that's the baseline. And then, you know, I, I guess there are there have always been some issues that impinge on medicine and medical science where there are different views based on different values, where religion comes in, where, you know, one's broad political uh, uh, perspective comes in. But it really became evident you know, over the uh, the initial reaction to the pandemic, where we have a massive threat, gets everybody's attention. Yes. Uh, there's inadequate data on almost every front. Yes. There are people who are viewed as experts, either because they are or because the media viewed them as experts. <laughs> yes. And they're being called upon in tribalistic news networks to yes. offer their opinions. And this is all occurring at a time of a very, uh, you know, um, complicated presidency of someone who, uh, you know, was loved by some, hated by many. And then 
all of the various issues that related to COVID and how to react to it and understand it became linked yes. by many people to yes. one political meta-narrative or another. And I think you and I both began to see that at about the same time. And even though we had, you know, had very minimal, you know, direct interactions, we 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 both said, "Do you think this is right? The way yeah. this is happening?" Yeah. And we agreed that it wasn't. So that's how we we came together to think about those issues. You know, I think, and and this is a commentary that we wrote in Stat in early, very early April of uh, 2020. And I think. Um, you know, I, I think you recently asked me, is there anything you would have changed about it? And I think we both agreed there's not a single yeah. word we would have changed. Yeah. Um, and in, in, in some ways, I mean, I'm sad that this is the case, but in some ways it was quite prescient. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it pointed out a few things that I think we've seen. As you point out, the threat was unprecedented. The response was also unprecedented. Unprecedented right. threat, unprecedented response. You want all hands on deck. You want every smart person at the table throwing out ideas, give, being devil's advocate. You know, let me find blind spots I didn't see. You want a vigorous like, academic discussion. And what you got was you got fear, anxiety. And these emotions drive us towards base human instincts, which is not only you're not just wrong, you're bad. You're a bad person. You should stop yeah. talking. We should silence you. We should cut you off, let you out. You know, you're out. You're good because yeah. you agree with what I think. You're good. You're on my team. You're on my side. Come on my table. And we got this really tribalism. One of the things we wrote in that article that turned out to be, I think, every week that went by in the Trump administration, and, and full disclosure, I think people can look at our tweets. Neither you nor I like this guy. Okay. So, full oh, yeah, right. Not <laughs> like is an understatement. <laughs> Neither you nor I like this guy. Okay. But we also um, saw that every time he said something, um, it it there was there was the the action and then the the counteraction. It was um, his supporters, you know, they 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 both thought that was right, and some people opposed him just to oppose him because they don't like the guy. And again, you know, I don't like the guy. I probably don't. I mean, I my my visceral feelings for the guy are are powerful visceral feelings. Um, but if he says open schools, and I actually think open schools is right. I'm going to agree with him just because, you know, I'm, I, I try to stick with the issue. So one of the things we wrote was that there is a risk, I think something like there's a risk more toxic and uh, dangerous um, than COVID-19, which is an existential, which is a huge threat. But the existential threat is that someday everything in science will be a matter of politics. If you are um, a Republican, yeah. you think it's good to drug this receptor. And if you're a Democrat, you think it's a bad <laughs> idea to drug the receptor, right? To take, to take it right. to the, right. So I wonder if you might talk about that. I mean, how, ha how has that idea played out over the last year? How do you think about the issue of intertwining science and politics? Well, I think it's, it's as horrible as it could be. And it, uh, you know, the sentence that we had in that stat article in April, you know, has just gotten bigger and bigger uh, in terms of its implications and the proof that it's, it's what's driving so much discussion. Um, and, um, I mean, even if politics wasn't as toxic as it is today with the tribal separations where the acquisition of information comes in tribally, the efferent side of yeah. what you say is tribal, yeah. uh, it tribally influences policy in, in, you know, in, in, in all the ways that we see, that is the antithesis of uh, a, you know, uh, academic approach, uh, even though, of course, you can look back in history and there have been violations of this going yes. back from the first academic uh, institutions. 
But the point is now it has become almost a driving force and it makes it extremely uh, uh, difficult for people who have interesting ideas that may be different from narrative A or narrative B, it makes it difficult for them to even put forward those ideas in a public space. Yes. Uh, why is that? Because they don't just get told why they're wrong. That would be fine if they yeah. were told why they're wrong. Uh, they get told that they're evil. They get yeah. told that they're they're uh, you know they, they that they shouldn't exist. Yeah. And uh, this is not an exaggeration. Yeah. It is the way that it is. And it's not only over COVID, it's over some other issues as well. And, um, you know, my my main, uh, the way I've said it to myself and a few close friends and family recently is I, I'm on the fence. We're either close to going off the cliff to a <laughs> yeah. point that will no longer be recognizable as a liberal society yeah. with humanism as its driving force. Uh, uh, and I don't know what it's going to be replaced by, yeah. or we're close yeah. to an inflection point yes. where the great majority of people of goodwill who don't like these excesses will start to rise up together, be a little less afraid yes. to say what they believe, yes. uh, and just duke it out in the world of mm -hmm. ideas. That's where we are right now, in my view. And I'm putting a lot of my time and effort into finding ways to get us to that inflection point. I I think that that's, you know, a, a very important and laudable goal. And um, if I might just add, you know, I think, you know, we talked about how science and politics became intertwined in part because this is such a polarizing figure. Anything he says, he, you know, he, yeah. he, he, he touches it with his with his hand and it turns, you know, it turns red, you know, it turns Republican, yes. you know. Um, but in addition to that, and the reason in part that so many middle of the road people are just dead quiet is the culture you alluded to, um, you know, I don't, I don't know what people want to call it, um, and I, 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 I'll avoid, you know, any, any, yeah. any labels, but I guess the culture I think that, that makes it very difficult is um, human beings, we do so many things from when we're born to when we die. So many deeds, small deeds, you can give somebody some change out of your pocket when you're walking down the street. Um, you can help a medical student out. You can help somebody uh, cross the road. Um, uh, you can raise a family as you, you know, as you've done. You can raise children. You know, you can uh, take care of your mother when she's sick. You can hold your father's hand when he dies. We do all these things. Um, but we're in a cultural moment where uh, a lifetime of things is, is suppressed by one wording one tweet, yes. you know, 280 right, characters, right. a lifetime right. of deeds is one uh, is gone. Uh, the 280 right. characters is there. So, and, and, and I don't know what this is. It's this, it's this, it's, it's, a, it's an idea that you can have a referendum on another human being, a total referendum that says this person should be excommunicated, fired from their job and stay home and not participating or, or suspended from their work or no longer allowed yeah. to participate on an editorial board or whatever, um, because of how they said one thing one day. When, when, when one, they may have misarticulated their own sentiment in their heart. Their heart may be in the, the place you want them to be. They just didn't word it right because not all of us are yeah. so good with words. Um, yes. Okay. So that's the, cult, and, and that cultural, that cultural phenomenon that's in the zeitgeist, that is what keeps a lot of people who just want to say something like, look, you know, I don't agree with everything this person says, but some of the things they say yeah. have a point and maybe we should yeah. hear them out. And right. you don't, people don't want to say that because then they'll be, you know, just guilt by association. Um, yeah. So I guess, I guess the question I have for you is, um, 
I mean, I guess this is what you're working on. This is what you're trying to um, uh, uh, fix. This set, this idea that we can we can define people in this moment. And I guess the question I had for you, is, I remember the question. The question was this: You were dean of Harvard Medical School. There's no way you went your whole deanship without having to adjudicate a difficult somebody in your organization. Somebody did something, and it was an issue. And I guess what I want to say is, I guess I'm curious. Yeah. What are the processes by which you would handle such an issue? How would you think about it? You know, as a dean, I'm sure it has happened. Sure. And 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 what might we learn in the culture of social media from that process? What are the what are the what? How can we you know make this process more fair uh, potentially? Yeah. Well, the social media process is the complete antithesis <laughs> of what processes yeah. we had as an organization. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because it's the completely bottom up. People, they have access to saying whatever they want to say, and then they walk away, and then other people read it and respond to it. I mean, that is not the kind of process. So, you know, as the dean of Harvard Medical School, there's a bunch of different domains, obviously. So there was the whole area of uh, misconduct. Yes. Okay. So, (laughs) you know, and we had a large and still have, the school has a infrastructure of lawyers and experts who do nothing but hear of complaints or stories of misconduct of one kind or another, research misconduct or some other kind of misconduct. And there is a formal process for hearing about it, responding to it, informing the accused that they have been so accused. Uh, And then there are committees that are named to evaluate and obtain data and Uh, There are criteria for doing that. Uh, And then it goes to several additional committees. And I can tell you in the area of research misconduct, you know, we have a faculty, a full-time faculty of 12,000, at least when I left, that's what it was. Uh, And, um, you know, at any one time, there are dozens of cases that are in adjudication. And the dean is what they call the final decider. Yes. Uh, if it's someone who's directly employed by the medical school, the dean is the decider after a formal report is handed to the dean. And then if it's someone, the majority of the faculty are working at one of our hospitals or research institutes, and then it's the CEO of that plus the dean jointly make a conclusion I see. and inform the relevant people. Now, yeah. you know, a funny story, which I don't know, we may not have time for it, no, but no, I'll please. say- That very early in my career, I learned about this concept, because if you want to go back and read an article that was in the front page of the New York Times magazine in 1981 or something like that, it was the story of a person no longer alive named Philip Felig, who had just been named to be the chair of medicine at Columbia. Okay. And to make a long story short, there was some research misconduct in his lab. Yes. And at that time, there were no formal processes. I was brought in. I was sort of, my arm was twisted. I was brought in to be the person to do the investigation. You were the special prosecutor. Yeah. Yes. I went, I took the train down to Yale. I reviewed things. I wrote a report. And then there was an attempt to cover it up. And then it finally led to the firing of this individual, wow. the senior professor, and wow. the junior person who did the manipulation 
left the country and has never been seen again. Okay. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. but I knew that at that point there was no process. Yes. There was no authority. There was no nothing. And now I look today, there is, you know, for a book that I've been working on, yes. which yes. is going to have a chapter on this. Yes. You know, what, what's happened is it's gotten too complicated. Okay. So there was one re very famous, you can read about it in the New York times case uh, of research misconduct of a faculty member at Harvard Medical School that started my first year as dean in some fashion or other, and then ended up finally becoming a public story uh, a couple of years after I left being I dean. Yeah. So there was about a seven or eight year long- Too long. Uh, yeah. Investigation, it was too long. Yeah, yeah. And it became long because of the way the processes yeah. are set up yeah. and lawyers and so anyway, I don't even remember what question I was, but then- No, 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 you're- Oh yes, you're you asking me yeah. about processes, yes. okay? Uh, and you know, there are some instances where things get done without process and I will bring it up a highly controversial case is uh, a case at the University of Pittsburgh where there was an article written by yes. a cardiologist. I won't yes. say his name now, yes. but people can look it up. Yes. It's in it's in the in the We've news. We talked media. about it on this podcast. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, was that swift. was a case over, where over the weekend, as best, as best as I could tell, there was no process, yeah. no due process or even process. And I, I was shocked. I almost fell off my chair when I read about that because uh, uh, that's not the way it should be. So I guess, uh, I mean, if I were to summarize a few things that you said that I think are salient, um, I think you, you're somebody who says, uh, I, I think one of the things you said clearly is to me, just as delayed as just a denied. So if you take seven years or eight yeah. years, that's too long. But on the flip yeah. side, one hour decisions are too capricious. That's not right, right either. There has right. to be, you know, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know if people know this, but it's like, I mean, I mean, it's kind of obvious to me, which is if you are writing an email and you're really angry, you're going to say some things you don't want to say. If you take eight years to send the email, it's going to be obsolete, <laughs> but you need to take a few days to at least calm right, down, right, you right, know, right. and that's all we're, that's all you're saying is that whatever process you have, it's got to be that right sweet spot where yes, it's still timely, yes. but you okay. The second thing you're saying, investigate. I mean, yes, there can be all sorts of claims made from um, how somebody said something and what they may or may not have meant, how people felt about that, how people perceived that, what the tone was in that thing. And, and I think it's not so easy. I mean, there, it's not so easy to know what somebody said and what they meant, even if it's so simple as 30 people heard somebody say something. You got to talk to 30 people separately and you got to make the people feel, not 30, but you know, a few people, make yeah. them feel comfortable that they can tell you how they really felt about what was said, what was the tone of what was said, what was might've been meant by it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, right. Um, uh, let me just add yes, there on. one thing. Yes. One of the more toxic and dangerous and irrational things that is out there now yes. is the idea that intent doesn't matter. Uh -huh, it's yes. only yes. the effect on the recipient that matters. Yes. Now, of yes. course, the recept the effect on a recipient is important. It's not to be, you know, uh, made light of in any sure. way, shape or form. But in my understanding of human behavior and ethics and proper you know, uh, society, uh, a person's intent is very important to what it is that you hold them responsible for. And I think it's the, the difference between murder and manslaughter is literally yes. the intent, right? It's literally the intent. Yeah. Did you exactly. mean to kill them or was it an accident? Yeah, exactly. So, um, that, that, you know, the problem is that intent is, you know, it's not something yes. you just read off the page, yes. right? You have to use 
various kinds of judgments and uh, to determine what the intent was. Which is all the more reason, I think, for one, um, the investigation aspect. Two, taking into account someone's track record. Who is this person? What do they yes. stand for? What have they done? What are their actions? Not judge them yes. based on one moment, one oh, second. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I, okay, so I mean, I think we're on the same page. And I guess I would say, and then the last thing you're saying is the the issue of the Pittsburgh issue, which I think is also a bungle. I think it's a bungle. It's a it's a meta bungle. It's a bungle, you know, on the issue of fairness to the person involved. It's a bungle. Yeah. On the meta issue of actually advancing, I think, a legitimate um, uh, dialogue yeah. and discussion, it's a bungle because now everyone is intimidated from ever talking right. about the topic. It's the suppression we, of the discussion. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. You, know, you just you know, killed if, everything. If the, discussion, if the discussion is one that will lead rational people to say, this is wrong for the following reasons, yeah. have the discussion yeah. for God's yeah. sake. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think that's a meta bungle. But I think I think the issue in 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 these cases is a leadership issue. The leader is capitulating to the heat yeah. of the moment. And you know what? I mean, um, uh, uh, people, I don't know. Uh, uh, being a leader, I'm, I, I know being a, I can imagine being a leader puts a target on your back. I, I, I commiserate. You're, it's not heavy as the head that wears the crown. I'm sure that's true in these organizations where yeah. petty politics dominates. However, the one duty you have is that when people come to you and they're saying, get this person and throw them out of here, you have to say you have to you have to talk you know you have to hear them out obviously and and respect their point of yeah. view but you can't just capitulate to them to save your own yeah. head yeah well no i think that uh you know you know that i completely agree with that yeah. i would say that my sense is that the you know let's say compared to 10 years ago the the likelihood that a leader president dean any other, you know, similar type position would be, you know, uh, quickly forced to do something that they didn't want to do yeah. because of a crowd. It was much lower 10 years ago because yeah. yeah. they didn't have the crowds that they yeah. have now. And what what you see now is it you have the 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 the, the politicization of certain points of view that a group will say this is the acceptable one that one is not that's you have to start with that then you have to have a group of activists it can be relatively small who have you know access to a public media uh, twitter or whatever yeah. and they make a declaration it rapidly spreads including yeah. increasingly severe accusations yeah. at the more Say it again. You pause. And then, 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 you know, uh, before more than a few minutes or hours or days are gone, the person is on the defensive and they either have to, uh, they either have to cave, which many of them do, the majority from what I can see. That's what I see. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. or they make a stand where it's a rare thing. I know of a few instances yeah. where people have done that yeah. Yeah. and it has worked out. But um, uh, it is, it, it is, you know, if you asked me today, would I want to, knowing what I know now, yeah. and I was, uh, you know, 15 years younger, would I want to be in the role that I yeah. was in? Yeah. And I would really have to think about it wow. because yeah. I would think of it as, you know, Jeff, if you're going to be true to yourself, you will come under attack on a yes. number yes. of occasions yes. and you may not survive. Is that what you want to do? You know? Yeah. 
and uh, you know, I think that a lot of people are having those thoughts. Um, and and what it's going to do, it's going to shift at the margins the people who take those leadership jobs to people who aren't as worried about caving in. I mean, that's what it's going to come down yeah. to. Or, Will or that people good for who, our society, no. Or people who are, uh, although maybe good, they're not the best person for the job. I mean, that's yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Okay, uh, that's terrific. I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I think that's that's important and needs to be said. Um, <clears throat> okay, the last thing I want to ask you. Yeah. I got to let you go. I know I'm over our time. Um, you know, um, I admire your family. I'll tell you why. Um, you know, uh, your wife's on Twitter. Um, I, I, I know one of your daughters is on Twitter, uh, who I was a big, I, I, well, I am a big fan of. Um, <laughs> and and I admire your family because, um, and this is not just my my feeling. I think people have literally told me, they're like, the Flyer family, they they like a good dialogue. They like a good discussion. You've argued with your, your, your daughter has pushed back on you, you know, on Twitter. You, um, you know, your wife's pushed back on you, um, you know, um, um, but but it, it's never mean spirited. It's always, um, you know, it's always cordial. It's always from a place of respect. Um, and, and it's always about trying to articulate the differences. So I guess I'm curious about, um, I don't know, did you, you intended to raise your kids that way? So that you all can have a good and what was dinner? What was dinner time like? Are you are you guys arguing all the time? What is it? Uh, yeah, you know, um, I guess I'd like to have some videos of what some of my early dinners looked like, uh-huh. so I could really say so with, uh, you know, with uh, with solidity to my yeah. statement. But what I would say is, uh, to be serious about it, is that I value ideas. I value interchange. And that's not just a made up thing. I do. Uh, And uh, my sign of respect for someone, uh, whether it be a colleague or my wife or my daughter or one of my daughters or son-in-laws, is that I I would like to know what you think. And uh, and and I hope that you would like to know what I think. Yeah. And if we agree, that's great. It won't be that long a discussion, right? Mm-hmm. If we disagree, I'll be around to talk with you about yeah. it. And, yeah. you know, and I might even change my mind. So I, you know, the idea that I have never changed my mind, you know, is a silly thing. I've dramatically changed my views on many topics yes. over the course of my career. Yes, I can uh, attest to that. Ah. And I, I think yeah. I've done that based on learning stuff yeah. and, Realizing that something I might have thought uh, 30 years ago, you know, isn't as true as I thought then. So, um, you know, the, we have two daughters. You know, one basically tends to think more like me. The other has different ideas. And I like them both. I love them both. They're both my daughters. They're yeah. both great. And uh, we have great discussions. Um, my wife, Terry. Murado's Flyer is, uh, you know, she's had her own scientific career, but we've also collaborated. Uh, We've collaborated at a time when some people said, you know, husband and wife shouldn't collaborate because Mm -hmm. it'll disadvantage one or the other. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we understood what the arguments were and worked out pretty well uh, for both of us. And um, and we don't agree on everything, (laughs) hardly everything. And but we're you know we're we 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 duke it out uh, at the dinner table and elsewhere. So um, to me, that is if you told me life would be just what it is now, except you couldn't really have discussions about important topics with people you disagree with. 
I might want to jump off a building at that point. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I, I agree with you actually. And, um, I would say I just, my last thought, and then I'll give you the last word. Um, yeah. my last thought is, um, you know, there's a number of issues I feel really passionate about. I feel like I have looked into this issue deeply. I've read about it a lot. We've published papers on this issue. I feel super passionate about, um, I have my view on this issue. And I guess if I could live, if I have two possible worlds, world A, I just, by fiat, I get everything I want. The world runs the way I want it to run based on my understanding of things. Um, and I just use brute force and power to carry out my wishes. I'm the yeah. dictator. You hear it be. Okay. World two. I don't get what everything I want. I have to earn everything I get. I have to patiently find people, persuade them. I have to think about how can I get the fellows to think more like me because some of these faculty, I can't change their mind. I have yeah. to earn every vote, earn every vote. Even if that means I don't get everything I want, I will always live in world two than world one. I don't want what I want by fiat. I don't want it. I want to persuade the other person that I'm right. Um, that you know. And I guess that yes. to me is part of what's going on here is that we think getting what you want is the answer. Getting what you want isn't the answer. It's persuading others. Because when you persuade others, there's a risk that you will be persuaded the other way around. I've also had a few, there's a few issues, maybe I can't ever even talk about, but there's a few issues that I flipped a little bit. Um, but there are a lot of issues that I'm just the same way I was when I was 22. Um, so I guess yeah. that's what I'd say. I think it's more, as somebody who deals in, 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 in the academy, it is more satisfying to change a mind than it is to get someone to be quiet, I think, far more. Yeah, well, look, I think we'd both be happier in world two, and that's why we like each other. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when the point comes that everything you say is something I could predict, I'll probably want to talk more with somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well said. Um, Dr. Flyer, uh, thank you so much for your time. Um, this is a real pleasure. Uh, getting to chat with you. And um, I'm, 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 I only regret that it took us so long to do it for the podcast. I think listeners will enjoy it. Okay, fantastic. And I uh, look forward to many years of uh, vigorous debate and interchange on many subjects. Yes. And we'll have to, we'll have to revisit conflict of interest someday. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one that I'm happy to engage on. <laughs> Sounds right. great. Great to Take see you. Take care. You've been listening to Season 3 of Plenary Session. Plenary Session is produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. The views expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it and no one else. Plenary Session is not medical advice. Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Until next time.